welcome to Voices from the Grassroots. This is your host, Clay Haran, coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. This episode, I will be sitting down with John Bellamy Foster. John is a professor of sociology at the University of Oregon. He's also the editor of legendary socialist magazine, Monthly Review. In this interview, we discussed most centrally a text that he wrote back in 2016, right after Donald Trump was elected, titled Trump in the White House, Tragedy and Farce. And I really wanted to get John on the show because he has kind of a deep historical and systemic analysis of the Trump phenomenon. And I think it's really important that in the lead up to the 2020 election that we get a refresher on what exactly we're dealing with in Donald Trump and how Trump is not, as Joe Biden would call him, a aberrant phenomenon. As so, He's not something that came from outside of the system, but he's actually a product of the political establishment. And understanding how Trumpism kind of bubbled up from the gut of our political system, you can better pose or figure out how to pose a legitimate challenge to Trumpism and concentrated corporate power and basically all the forces that are preventing us from being a democracy. So I'm really excited to have John on the show. We had a we got a great show ahead of us. Thanks for tuning in. John, thanks for being on the show. In 2016, you wrote this text titled Trump in the White House Tragedy and Farce. And in this text, you call Trumpism a neo-fascist project. Uh, I wanted to hear a little bit more about why you chose the term neo-fascism and hear exactly how you define fascism or neo-fascism. Well, it's, it's really quite complicated because most people don't even know what fascism is anymore. They, they think of it as, as some kind of racism or nationalism. They don't understand it the way it was understood in the 1930s when it was it was uh, present in its classical phase in the 1920s and, and 30s. And fascism was originally understood, in fact, has to be understood as, um, there are a lot of aspects to it, but it has to be understood as a class alliance between the uh, big bourgeoisie or monopoly capital, the very upper echelons of the capitalist class and big business on the one hand, and the lower middle class, or sometimes called petty bourgeoisie, on the other. And it's this alliance that really um, made fascism. And the lower middle class is uh, tends to be uh, racially and economically privileged as opposed to the working class and to um, have a, a more reactionary ideology. Uh, the lower middle class is in the United States is maybe about 25% of the population, primarily white. They tend to be they're small business owners, uh, people who who work managerial uh, positions within small business, um, people who are kind of white-collar workers in the private sector, a whole stratum of uh, the population that's in a fairly privileged position, uh, sees them as themselves as distinct from the working class. 
or the prime elements of the working class are the bottom half of the population who receive about the median level of income or below, the lower middle class is above that. And, and so um, were Trump's supporters primarily. They, they get, while the median level of income is about $50,000 a year um, um, household income, the Trump supporters have $70,000, $120,000 a year. That's like his, his prime base is, is um, they're more privileged, they're more white. They tend to come from what we call rural areas, but not really rural, what we call demographically rural, that is smaller cities, smaller towns, um, and um, more segregated communities uh, tend to be uh, more religious, particularly Protestant. So the um, lower middle class is a very distinct element in society, and they tend to be reactionary towards the working class, who they see as non-white, you know, they see as, uh, you know, primarily people of color and immigrants, and that, and they, they're afraid of falling into the working class. And they're also very much opposed to the upper middle class, which they see as linked to government and, and having a higher levels of education being the more professional class, the professional technical class above them. So though, and they tend to, the lower middle class tends to be uh, more nationalist, more racist. Um, so um, they tend to be critical of crony capitalism and corruption, sort of somewhat critical of the of, of um, elements of capitalism, say of finance, but they actually are supportive of, of um, capitalism as a whole and they tend to identify with the big capitalists. And this is a phenomenon that you could see historically and all over the world. There are other aspects of, of uh, fascism, obviously, but the, the crucial thing is the alliance that makes the, uh, fascism possible. The very upper part of the capitalist class, the masters of the universe, don't have a mass base on their own, right? If they want to turn things to the right, they they basically have to turn to the the lower middle class. They can't depend on the working class, which has all of these socialist tendencies. And the upper middle class is uh, an educated element that has um, its own um, emphases. Uh, it sides with the capitalist class in some ways, but not culturally, and is not really prone to nationalism, but to cosmopolitanism. And so they, you know, C. Wright Mills in his white collar called the uh, lower middle class the rear guard of the capitalist system. I always quote that. The, um, and the, the system, if it wants to go in a reactionary direction, if it wants to attack the liberal democratic state, um, the primary structure of the state in a capitalist society, and to move towards a more oligarchic structure, towards a, a structure that is more reactionary, that, that removes political rights, it's going to come into conflict with the working class and the upper middle class, but it can, it can usually draw on the lower middle class, which is a very volatile element in society. So you see yeah, this so what, in Hitler's Germany, you see it in, in, in Mussolini's Italy, you see it in Bolsonaro's Brazil. These are very different societies, but they belong to the fascist genus. And you see it in Europe and 
in some places today, in some of the right-wing movements, they belong to the general fascist genus because of this kind of class structure. We don't have anything like classical fascism. It's not like, it isn't like Nazi Germany. It isn't uh, like Mussolini's Italy. It's something new. And uh, it makes sense to call it neo-fascism, which is what they were calling it in, in Europe. Uh, they often talk about nationalist, national populism or neo-fascism. The um, Bannon, Steve Bannon, uh, was very much, he called it national populism, but he was very aligned with neo-fascist theorists um, in Europe um, uh, that um, he, he quoted and so on. So when people say the the white working class is Trump's base, do you disagree with you? You think that that's not true? No, it's it's not. First of all, when they are they're talking, the New York Times started talking about the white working class. They hadn't yeah, mentioned hear, the working class. Anywhere. They hadn't mentioned the working class in decades, really, until uh, they had to. Uh, find a way to to uh, explain this in in their terms and but the you know the the truth is you know when this area this lower middle class is is um, an area tends to be an area of white white privilege the, and if you look at the voting if you look at the actual voting um, say Trump lost when in the bottom half of the population about half of the electorate so people at the medium Median income and less, and the majority voted against Trump, and that includes a lot of whites who are part of the working class. Um, of course, he he got lot, he got less votes overall than than Clinton, but you know his his um, stronghold wasn't what we would normally call the working class. It's um, a sector above that which. You know, you could expand and say, well, that's part of the working class, too. But it uh, makes more sense to um, see it as lower middle class, these privileged areas with higher income and a really different politics and status in society. And um, it's very occupa occupationally distinct as well, right? But they vote in higher numbers than the working class where Trump made inroads in the Midwest, part of it was because there were, was very low ter voter turnout compared to, um, say, when Obama ran. The voter turnout was much less among people that um, we would classify as, as working class and um, certainly uh, the African-American population, but um, you know people in, say, the bottom half of household income generally. That was, that allowed um, Trump to make inroads. Uh, there is a class dimension to voting. I wanted to ask you or, or to clarify why you say that fascism is the inevitable product of monopoly finance capital. I don't know if it, I said it was inevitable. I, I think it might have been think, in, some, think, in some con situation, but, but yeah, it, it certainly is an, a natural outgrowth. Um, and um, monopoly finance capital, well, when we talk about monopoly capital, we're talking about the concentration centralization of capital. The fact that 
Um, a few corporations control most of the economy, and through mergers and acquisitions, this is getting more concentrated all the time. We brought that that back. Um, it was denied for a while that concentration was taking place in the United States. Um, we did an empirical study in Month Review in, I think it was 2011, uh, Arge Mill, Jonah, and, and Bob McChesney and I, and uh, we showed how the economic concentration was developing. And that was picked up in the economic press. It was picked up by and columnists in the New York Times, and it was and the Common, Economist magazine and Industry Week, and all of a sudden there's a shift. And they, they began to recognize concentration again, and certainly we played a re leading role in that. But it's you have a situation where in the United States there are several million firms, top 200 corporations account for something like 30, 35% of all gross profits in the country. And, if, and you take the top 500 corporations in the world and they, just 500, and they, they account for 40% of all the revenue in the globe. And this is getting more and more concentrated all the time. So you have these giant corporations which have global commodity chains stretching around the world who um, are multinational corporations that have enormous monopoly power and are able to charge monopoly rents. It isn't the kind of competition they um, teach in economics courses or, or talk about in in the newspapers, the rea reality is that we have an economy that's dominated by mega corporations. They're also conglomerates. Um, they they uh, they dominate many industries. Um, they're oligopolies that are just a few corporations controlling a given industry. There are only like twelve significant man automobile manufacturers in the world, and this keeps on getting uh, the numbers keep on diminishing. So they have this power and they wield this power in all spheres, including to to get higher profits. And nowadays, I've argued that since, um, you know, since the 1980s, and particularly in this century, we've seen the development of what we call monopoly finance capital or global monopoly finance capital. And that, what that emphasizes is the fact that the economy has gotten financialized to a larger extent, that finance now dominates to a larger extent over production, and all of these corporations are essentially financial entities, and to understand them, you have to understand that their headquarters are financial headquarters in the um, center of the world economy, and the production is most likely occurring in the global south. And so you have this situation of monopoly combined with financial domination, and we call this monopoly finance capital. To explain the, the, the way, the kind of phase that we're in now to, under, to explain why things are different. And, and neoliberalism is the ideology of monopoly finance capital. And uh, it's, it's all about changing the role of the state to subordinate the state to the market. So the, the state is no longer above the market, no longer regulating it. 
the 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 market the economy uh, which itself is dominated by monopoly finance capital re regulates the state rather than vice versa so this is um the kind of world we live in why would that finance this the financial system be producing or be a part of producing the kind of right-wing national uh, nationalist politics that we see propping up all across the world how how exactly are those two things linked okay the right-wing nationalism is always there what happens is if capital suddenly thinks that the liberal democratic state is no longer working. And in fact, they've, they've, they've uh, weakened the state by making it um, subordinate to the market. And then lo and behold, the state can't regulate the market or function and that the system isn't functioning. Um, we have like economic stagnation since the 1970s, the economy has, declined every, the rate of growth in the economy has declined every decade since the 1970s. So you're seeing a half a, a decade, uh, I mean half a century of, of worsening stagnation basically. You have growing inequality, you have an increasingly dysfunctional state, you have the potential of explosions from below in these situations where, where um, the, the population might actually revolt. A safeguard for the capitalist system, a way of trying to make things function, a way of, of countering any kind of possible left revolt. And this usually happens actually when the left is weak, not strong, for various reasons, but they can, they can mobilize these reactionary elements. It's, it's not just that we suddenly have these nationalistic elements, although uh, in the United States, one factor is the decline of U.S. hegemony. The decline of U.S. power in the world has kind of created a more uh, reactionary nationalism in response. But, it's not, but this is always there, and it's mobilized by what? By the upper echelons of the capitalist class have to be in support of the emergence of that kind of movement, the, and uh, they put money into it. They come up with um, uh, a leader from, maybe from the capitalist class itself, or from the military or somewhere, some, that can galvanize the public. And, uh, you know, it's in the context of economic stagnation. The economy is, is uh, at a peak in the business cycle now, but the number of people who've dropped out of work is still, is even now, large by historical standards. In the last decade, you know, we have productive capacity in, in industry, right? Manufacturing capacity is, is really a measure of how much the economy is working. Uh, for the first time in modern history, I mean, since we've had records, that is since the 1930s, at least in in the let's say since since the post beginning of the post second world war period, for the first time capacity utilization has never risen what above eighty percent an entire decade. It's it's the degree to which factories and machinery are being used. So, for over a decade, for the first time, or in, in modern U.S. history since the post second world war period, uh, our factories and our machinery have not even reached the level of 80% productive capacity. That means that 
over 20% of our productive capacity has been idle for over a decade. The entire decade of recovery since the 2008 crisis, we haven't ever gotten our productive capacity up to 80%. And investment doesn't occur significantly in, in new plant and equipment until you get up above 80% productive capacity utilization. And uh, it really needs to be like at 85%. Because if you own factories, if you own factories and you have machinery, and those factories and machinery are not being used, or, 20, or more than 20% is not being used, you're not going to invest in new factories and machinery because uh, you already have idle machinery. You'd just be The risk would be too great. You can't even produce that full output now. So, so um, they're not investing. Investment is is stagnant in the economy, basically, although it's got a, a big push from fracking and, uh, and oil production lately. But mostly, um, and particularly investment in manufacturing, is uh, very weak. And this is a reality of the economy. The economy is, is stagnant. It's even worse in Europe um, than it is here. Do you, do you see, you call at the end of your book, um, for an extra electoral organizing strategy to address rising right-wing nationalism and also yeah. rampant corporatism, whatever you want to call it. Do you, do you think social democracy or the movement for like somebody like Bernie Sanders is the best alternative that we have? Or, or does, does social democracy make you hopeful about addressing these these forces or kind of turning the country in a in, in a better direction? What do you what do you or generally just what do you think about social democracy? It's very complicated uh, because you're, you're looking at the situation in the United States. It's mildly uh, it's it's a mild source of hope. Or uh, I mean the, the uh, certainly when it comes to um, when it comes to the development of movements that are more in the fascist genus and uh, and um, are right wing and social democracy is a breath of fresh air and it does it is you know it and uh, it opens up space for even uh, more uh, radical revolutionary uh, left developments. Some of these ideas and struggles could then be pushed further, be developed further as people learn. So there's, there's all sorts of possibilities. One of the problems with social democracy is that it's still, the, the movement in the United States is, they call it democratic socialism now, but it's sort of democratic party socialism, which is a contradiction in terms. A lar large part of it, at least, is, is tied to the democratic party or sees its advance through the Democratic Party. Now, there are a number of contradictions to this, but the biggest contradiction is that, aside from uh, the Democratic Party being tied to capital, it's very, very tied, as is the Republican Party, but the Democratic Party no less so, to, to an imperialist strategy globally. So one of the weaknesses of you know, social democracy in the United States is that it hasn't actually challenged in significant ways the, 
the military industrial complex. This is a, a, a limitation, but certainly, certainly well, they, they bring, there's more chance. Up. There's more chance of a challenge coming from that direction than sure. there is from what we've got. So there's so, a light challenge, like people like Ilan Omar. Mm-hmm. Or Ro Khanna yeah. are representatives who actually talk about these issues. They may yeah. not question like the basic principles of U.S. imperialism, but they're at least bringing it up and calling awareness to it. So I, th- I think that that's yeah, that's progress. I see. I see I that as hopeful. Yeah, well, it not... might. You know, it it it's mildly hopeful, and <laughs> and I I would uh, prefer it if um, say Sanders or AOC actually defended Venezuela instead of uh, simply insisting that we don't have a military intervention there. We should be uh, challenging the the whole uh, economic warfare against uh, Venezuela, their seizing of their assets and so on. But I do, you know, Sanders is is better on these topics. And uh, I've a- actually, you know, met him in a context where he was dealing with some of these these topics. He, he's aware and he's superior in all respects to what we've got. And it does, it is an exciting time. And also that the, what's happening with the DSA, there are all sorts of radicals, revolutionaries, creative people, people who want to transform the society who are organized and, and entering into it. And it doesn't necessarily have to be just an electoral push. Um, Really, um, there it's necessary to organize within the society in various ways to recreate power at at the local level, to to rebuild unions, to um, create the um, structures um, of of resistance all through the society, and um, the without that, um, there's no possibility of of just winning by electoral means. Uh, so that's what you, you mean by extra electoral. Yeah. Like what 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 kind of or what kind of organizations do you see mounting a true opposition to to what we're seeing or the forces we're seeing right now that are destroying the environment, concentrating wealth? What kind what kinds of organizing? I mean, one of the exciting things was the West uh, Virginia teachers who they didn't really have the right to bargain uh, to any any extent or go on strike, and they just did it, right? But now they're, the West Virginia, the, the, the government there is trying to close down all possibilities of teachers striking by uh, saying that any, you know, passing a law at the state level that uh, any teacher who goes on strike can immediately be fired and mm-hmm. so on. But we, you know, we need... We need um, to revive our movements. We need to rebuild our unions, but build them in a different way, right? And and they've got to be more egalitarian. They've got to be broader based. They have to be less, um, um, you know, they, they have to embrace larger parts of the workforce. You know, here the, at this university, the, the professors are are unionized, but the the tenured professors t- are unionized together with the non-tenured professors in a single union, which is the way things have to be done, right? We need you know uh, to uh, to uh, break these these uh, status differentiations that that destroy the working movement, working class movements. Mm-hmm. So there are all sorts of there's there's we know you know 
there are models in the past of all kinds of, of organizing that we, we could return to in new ways, in new creative ways, but um, it requires that people do that. And I think people in the United States have lost the ability to organize. We have to stop just mar having protests. Protest marches are, are fine, but everything has to be tied to organization. There needs yeah. to be institution yeah. building. And um, without that, there's no power, right? Yeah. Capital has all the power. So, but there are all sorts of ways to, to fight back if, if you're willing to organize and create structures. And of course there have to be political structures at the local, national, and international level. You know, the problem is you have um, global inequality and, and imperialism, and as long as this exists, you're not going to be able to, to deal with any problems effectively, in my view. And uh, any of the major problems we have in the globe, environmental, economic, and uh, uh, the, um, so uh, it's tied into to a structure of global inequality. And, you know, and that perpetuates a situation where you have like three people in the United States have more wealth than half the U.S. population. But that's product of this whole system of global inequality where, where the, you know, wages in global north are like 20 or 50 times more than in the global south. And, and uh, we have to uh, address that, um, those inequalities, the movements... The, the revolutionary movements, the, the real movements for change in the world have come for, for now for more than a half a century. For most of the 20th century have from, come from the periphery, from um, people in the, in the global south. And we have to carry out our own struggles, but we have to be aligned with those struggles. And um, that's where the real impetus of change occurs. That's where most of the people in the world are. That's where the most of the suffering in the world is, and so the wretched of the earth. And so we, uh, we need an alliance that comes from the global south, maybe building on south-south relationships, but a, an international of workers and peasants with which we can be aligned. That doesn't mean we don't carry out struggles here, but they shouldn't be uh, struggles. The struggles should be detached as much as you know, from a context of imperialism. And um, otherwise, it's like race, it's like a working class movement that also accepts racism. It destroys, um, it destroys it at the root, right? Uh, you can't have, as Marx said, you, you know, in the 19th century, when at the time of slavery, he said, workers in white skin can't be free until workers in black skin are free. But today, you know, we have to say, you know, that, the workers in the rich countries can't be free as long as uh, the workers uh, in the poor countries are being super exploited or being oppressed um, in the ways they are. And that was part one of my interview with John Bellamy Foster, professor of sociology at the University of Oregon and editor of Monthly Review magazine. Stay tuned for part two where John discusses the 
Trump administration's policy towards Venezuela and the history of the Bolivarian Revolution.